Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, guys. Molly here. I'm so excited for today's episode with Dr. David Wiss. Clarissa and I did this interview last year for the Food Junkie Summit that you can still check out on our website. And we felt it was such an important topic that we wanted to share it on the podcast. So please keep in mind, you'll hear us reference papers and research during the interview that were released last year. But before we get into today's discussion on trauma, I wanted to take a moment to share some announcements. It's back. Dr. Vera Tarman's I'm Sweet Enough Challenge. Be part of the sugar-free movement. Are you ready to quit sugar? Commit or recommit to the September Sugar-Free 30-Day Challenge. Eliminate all added and processed sugars from your diet between September 1st to September 30th. This year, we'll have some live cooking videos. You'll have access to the Kick Sugar Summit that's occurring September 1st through the 8th. There will be ongoing daily free Facebook peer support within the Facebook group, and there will be prizes for success. So register for the September challenge today by going to foodjunkiespodcast.com. Don't forget Dr. Vera Tarman's Sugar and Food Addiction course with Dr. Eric Westman's Adapt Your Life Academy will be live at the end of this month. So head over to the Adapt Your Life Academy website and get on the wait list today. Check show notes or the Food Junkies podcast website for the link. I also wanted to take a moment to share with you my latest passion project, YouTube. If you haven't heard, I'm seeking volunteers willing to share their stories on the Sweet Sobriety YouTube channel to decrease stigma and increase awareness around food addiction. Day one or day 1001, we want to hear your story. If you're interested, please check the show notes for more information or head over to the Food Junkies website and follow the link. Okay, now that the announcements are out of the way, let's talk about what you'll hear over the next hour or so. Dr. Wiss explains what trauma-informed nutrition is, different types of trauma, adverse childhood experiences and food selection, whether or not weight gain is a protective measure, interventions for food addiction or disordered eating that are helpful or harmful, events, effects, and experiences, how trauma alters the brain, responses to presenting food addiction research to eating disorder professionals, and whether or not trauma may be the bridge for the food addiction and eating disorder camps. Welcome, Dr. Wiss. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies Summit. We have David Wiss with us, and I'm just going to give the floor to him because I'd like for him to make his introduction to you guys. I think he can do it better than Clarissa or I could. So welcome, David. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hello, hello. It's always a pleasure to chat with you too. And yes, my name is David Wiss. I am a dietitian and the founder of Nutrition and Recovery we're a group practice in West LA where we do nutrition related services and um, provide such care to a wide range of mental health issues. So eating disorders, addictions, et cetera. I'm also an academic. I'm a fifth year PhD student at UCLA in the school of public health. I'm a PhD candidate wrapping things up. My dissertation is on early life adversity and mental health over the lifespan. So very fortunate to have moved out of the nutrition space and into the broader field of mental health. And what else? I have a new website called Wise Mind Nutrition, and that is going to be the place where I really try to bridge the gap between physical and mental health, 
I've focused a lot on eating disorders and addictions thus far. And I think there's a lot more that needs to be said around nutrition and depression, anxiety, trauma, maybe some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Excellent. And that brings me right into the first question then. What is trauma-informed nutrition and how is it different than trauma-focused care? Great. Yeah. Trauma is a really big topic now and everyone seems to want to uh, dip their toes in it for good reasons, right? There's a lot of research that shows the importance of trauma as a legacy over the lifespan and how it can really affect trajectories of individuals and groups, right? We think about trauma as being important in communities, in um, racial and ethnic groups, et cetera. So there's probably some really good definitions out there of trauma-informed care or trauma-informed, trauma-focused care, as you mentioned. And without uh, just trying to recreate those, I think what I would say is that when I think about trauma-informed nutrition, right? You know, first of all, when something's trauma focused, it sort of suggests that they're going to be addressing the trauma. Okay. And there's a wide range of ways that people try to do that. There's trauma focused care that really aims to discuss and dig into the trauma. And there's other modalities that say, let's not even do that. Let's wait and let's um, stay in the present moment. So there's a, a, a wide range of ways people conceptualize trauma related care. But when I think about trauma-informed, that doesn't necessarily mean that an individual needs to discuss these things with someone. It means that there is a different set of assumptions at play. So when I use the term trauma-informed, the first thing that I uh, really want to emphasize is that, you know, the practitioner, the provider is really working to avoid re-traumatization. Okay. So any individuals that's been uh, exposed to trauma has oftentimes, you know, a higher level of vigilance to threats or different levels of sensitivity to certain conversations, et cetera. So trauma-informed nutrition is about cultivating trust reducing shame, and um, like I said, avoiding re-traumatization. And that often comes through having a different set of assumptions, okay? So if an individual maybe has no trauma history or no early life adversity, you know, it's possible that they might really respond well to maybe a coaching approach that's perhaps more motivating or, you know, some people, as they say, they like that, you know, that kind of, um, that personal trainer approach where they're getting like kind of whipped into shape. And then for the next person that could be highly traumatizing. That could be a highly traumatizing experience where someone is putting pressure on them to do something that perhaps there's a lot of barriers at play. Perhaps someone else in their past has put pressure on them to do that. And so it brings up a lot of emotions and now they're binge eating because of the intervention, right? And so, yeah, when I think about trauma-informed nutrition, it really is about developing a set of assumptions about a person rather than about people in general. So you sort of start from this place that each person is different. Each person has a different lived experience and different things are going to be triggering for different people. And so nutrition by itself is triggering. You know, you want to, you don't believe me, try teaching nutrition in a group, right? 
try to teach nutrition to a group of 10 people. And I guarantee you, there'll be one person there that's triggered by something you're saying, or they disagree, right? There's so much disagreement. There's someone that's going to be like, oh my God, I cannot believe this person is telling me to eat dairy or, oh my God, did they just say grains, right? And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of room for uh, contention and disagreement. And so trauma-informed means we really think about individuals. And as a clinician, we get to develop some intuition around, you know, what that looks like. And sometimes we have to, you know, develop that intuition without necessarily asking people, right? It's almost like you get an antenna for where trauma lives. And, um, you know, that's really helped me be a better practitioner. So then is there different types of trauma? You know, we classically think like trauma was, oh, I was in a car accident. Are there different kinds we should be aware of? And could people have experienced trauma and not even be aware of it? Great question. Yeah. The term trauma is quite broad and I think it's a mistake to lump things together. Right. And we do that. The mind is limited. The mind is looking to make broad strokes. And so, you know, a lot of the original interest in trauma came from war veterans. We think about PTSD from those really significant events like car crashes and sudden death and earthquakes, natural disasters, things like that. But, you know, there's been a lot of different disciplines that have approached this, okay? So you see terms like early life adversity, early life stress, right? There's people that research trauma that's in utero or generational, intergenerational. So when I think about trauma, I usually start with the term early life adversity, which includes you know, a broad range of different stressors or traumas, some that can be, you know, quote unquote traumatic and some less so. And it's going to depend on the person, the individual's genotype, certain resilience factors. Uh, But the most common way that research at least has conceptualized trauma is through the adverse childhood experiences. And those are pretty specific in general. Those are, those are traumatic experiences that are experienced in the household generally. Okay. So things like child maltreatment. So there's usually two categories of ACEs, child maltreatment, which includes physical and sexual abuse, and then also different forms of neglect, physical, emotional, etc. And then there's a category of household dysfunction, which looks at things like parents fighting, getting divorced, family member with mental illness, a family member with suicidality, drugs and alcohol in the home, someone going to prison, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's important to really recognize that looking at household level ACEs does not capture all the different forms of adversity that someone can experience. So, you know, we can see someone that had a really great family and grew up in a household with very low levels of market dysfunction But at middle school, things were rough, right? Like in the community, they were being stigmatized. They were bullied. There's all sorts of forms of adversity that can happen in the community. And so someone could score zero on this really popular ACE measure, but be an absolute trauma survivor, okay? And so, you know, a lot of researchers have pushed for what we call expanded ACEs that looks at adverse childhood experiences, not just in the household, but in the community, in the school, like I said, bullying nowadays, it's, it could just be Instagram. 
the kid could have the greatest life, but be deeply traumatized from their experience on TikTok and Instagram, where their friends sort of kind of move them to the outer circle one day and stop liking their post, right? I mean, that is sufficient enough to create disordered eating in our youth, right? Let's be real. One comment, right? And so, yes, the different types of trauma are, are important to consider. Now, there's a whole host of other types of trauma that I didn't even, you know, mention, right? If you think about, you know, food insecurity, which is sometimes captured by the ACE measures, but like a lack of cognitively stimulating experiences for the young child or toxin exposure, right? Like that's an adverse childhood experience. If someone grows up next to a factory, right. And they're breathing really low quality air, et cetera. So, so it's broad early life adversity. And I've, you know, used the term ELA in my papers, early life adversity and ACEs sometimes interchangeably, but it really is important to get into the nuance and think about the different types of trauma because they do have different legacies. Okay. For example, you know, child sexual abuse is probably the most researched type of trauma and physical abuse, right? Those have probably more predictive power than parental separation or mental illness in the household, et cetera. And so, you know, there perhaps, and this isn't really necessarily been shown, but perhaps they're more likely to lead to biological embedding versus just emotional dysregulation. And so, yeah, you know, lumping them all together is the way research is done because it's hard to like build models when you're just testing for a single type of trauma you could have a missing variable problem. You want them to really be robust and look at all the different types of trauma, but to really get specific, uh, breaking down the types of trauma is important and the timing, the timing is important. And those aren't things that are easily researched either, you know, exposure to certain forms of abuse at age five, you know, is likely to be different than age 15. And if you're just asking about it in general in the first 18 years of life, you know, a lot of times the, the, the tools that we have won't, won't catch those things. So that's an area where we need to know more. Yeah. So how do these adverse childhood experiences and other traumas play a role? Like what's the mechanism that it plays a role in our eating behaviors or food choices? You know, how do stress and adversity ultimately affect human health and behavior? If you can give us an idea of how that mechanism works. Yeah. So there's a, a wide range of possibilities. So it's been shown through the original ACE study and then hundreds of studies since then that ACEs pretty much predict you know, most negative health outcomes, right? So it really points to the effects of ACEs being what we call nonspecific. In other words, it's not like, oh, this type of abuse leads to this type of an eating behavior. Really what we're seeing is that, you know, early life adversity, ACEs, affects the immune system from an early age, right? There's, you know, parts of the body like the bone marrow that produce immune cells like macrophages and monocytes. And these are responsible for the production of inflammatory molecules and things of that nature. So we're looking at people that have a baseline of higher inflammatory markers. Sometimes this is measured through what we call allostatic load. Their body is less capable of responding to you know threats in a way that can bring them back to homeostasis 
the stress response is altered. And so a combination of, right, inflammatory markers, the HP access, the stress response, which we know is linked to the output of cortisol. We certainly have changes in, you know, the brain at the structural, functional, and morphological levels. We see alterations in reward sensitivity. And so, you know, the ACEs, and by the way, there's things that come before ACEs too. ACEs aren't like the most upstream thing. You think about like, what, well, what causes ACEs, right? Like you think about the family, the neighborhood, some of the biological or genetic factors. So ACEs are like, they're upstream, but you know, in, in, a, in a life course perspective, they could be seen as even being sort of midstream, right? Like what leads to ACEs? How does ACEs affect not only physiology, but affect behavior, Right. And so, you know, to give an example, it's not unlikely that someone could experience a lot of adversity and um, their bodies, you know, starting to operate differently. And then the individual will learn that certain behaviors kind of make that feeling go away. Maybe they help them sleep at night, perhaps a comfort food or what some people would call emotional eating, what a lot of us might call food addiction might start to develop in early, you know, adolescence. And, you know, the brain is rewiring itself to learn survival techniques, right? So, you know, for example, if someone starts eating highly processed food every night, you know, as a way to support going to bed, the brain will learn that that particular substance or that particular behavior not only is rewarding, but it reduces negative affect, right? And so what we get from from there is now the brain is going to assign a tremendous amount of value to that experience, right? And that's what we call salience, the assignment of value to something to make it memorable. So, you know, the process develops over time to where because of the the trauma, because of the stress, and because of the availability of food, what we end up seeing is that the food becomes way more salient and way more rewarding to that person than it might be to the average other person, perhaps the person that was not exposed to the trauma. Now, here's where it gets interesting. For one person, that trajectory could lead to compulsive overeating, uh, weight gain over time. It could be a classic model of food addiction, right? Leading to uh, the experience of living in a larger body, what many people call obesity. And then for the next person, they could be terrified about their night eating and then develop some compensatory mechanisms, right? And so pretty soon they realize their night eating comfort food, they've gained 15 pounds and then the exercise addiction starts and then the purging starts, right? And then the dieting starts, right? And then this sets up a whole nother cascade of changes in the brain and changes in, you know, social functioning, et cetera. So, you know, when I think about early life adversity and ACEs, it definitely has the potential to set up overeating, but, you know, through the pathway of overeating, it can also set up the restriction, the undereating, and the eating disorders. So when you look at the literature, you know, the odds ratios and the risk ratios for eating disorders and food addiction following ACEs and other forms of adversity is usually somewhere between two and three. And what that means is people that have experienced these uh, multiple forms of 
child maltreatment, household dysfunction, and the others have a two to three chance of developing food-related dysfunction. And this is new information. I mean, it's not brand new, but people haven't really synthesized all the literature. And, you know, where to, to tie it back to some of the original points, let's say someone's been exposed to a lot of trauma, they have disordered eating, and now they're coming in for nutrition-related care, and then the nutrition-related care is not aware or not informed of this, you know, previous exposure to adversity. Some of the interventions that are out there can actually make people worse. Yeah, I love that you were speaking about that, you know, specifically when you said this type of trauma leads to this type of eating behavior. And I think I've definitely had clients come to me who sought, you know, treatment for sexual abuse before, and they were told that they put on these pounds to keep themselves safe and not be attractive to men or the other sex. And I'm wondering, I know you've done some research on this. Can you speak to this idea a bit? Yeah, thank you. I I, I started hearing that early in my career, working with people that had binge eating disorder, I noticed a pattern. A lot of people said, I was told by my therapist that I gained weight, you know, as a protective measure against future re-victimization following childhood sexual abuse. And, you know, the first time I heard it, I was like, I was like, wow, you know, these psychodynamic, you know, uh, psychologists, you know, they've got some really creative ways of, you know, connecting some dots. And, you know, I was, I was impressed. And then I heard it again and again and again. And finally, in one case, I kind of leaned into someone. I was like, do you believe that that's true? And they sort of scratched their head and they're like, I don't know. And then I realized, you know, when, when you become scholarly, you know, one of the things that I've really enjoyed is like, when there's information out there, you kind of scratch your head and you're like, all right, where does it come from, right? Like, like who developed this theory? What's the original paper? What's been like the living experience of this information? And how has it, right, disseminated, right? The production of knowledge. And so, you know, over the years, I, I started doing a little digging and I saw that in the 80s, there were some papers that really described what they call barrier weight. And interestingly, the principal investigator of the ACE study, Filetti, is actually one of the people that sort of kind of pioneered that thought from a non-psychodynamic standpoint. I think what they saw was that in a hundred, uh, I believe it was all women, people in a you know, weight management program, some people would rapidly gain back weight, you know, beyond what was kind of metabolically or physiologically expected. And they were puzzled by it, you know? Why is it that after spending six months to lose 30 pounds, why is it that within two weeks, some of them gained it all back, right? Like, what's the explanation? And so I think it sort of, you know, led to some hypothesis that maybe some people were uncomfortable at the lower weight, right? And then you have to think about like, well, why might that be, right? And then, you know, they started kind of doing some digging and figuring out that some people like felt safer when they were no longer maybe recognized as a candidate for a partner, which, you know, part of what I'll say in a minute about our recent paper is going to be 
that, um, you know, this assumption that fatness is always unattractive really just perpetuates weight stigma, right? So one of the main arguments that we made in, in the paper is that this assumption that just because someone's in a larger body means that they're not going to be attractive is not helpful either, okay? And a weight stigma is an important conversation. So around the same time in the 80s, the psychodynamics were developing theories around why people, why there was a link between childhood sexual abuse and obesity. And they came up with that kind of similar model. And I do think that that's a good model. We recently, you know, published a paper, it's going to be coming out within a few days called the limitations to the protective measure theory. And really the main point is that, you know, in the eighties, when they didn't have data on biological embedding of adversity, when they didn't know about the inflammatory cascades and the alterations in the ventral striatum following adversity. They weren't aware of the link between HPA access dysfunction and weight gain. They were doing the best that they could with the data that they had. They were trying to piece together information and make sense out of the world. They certainly didn't have data on food addiction, right? Fast forward a few decades There's tons of studies that show that childhood adversity increases addiction like eating and that, you know, the protective measure theory, while helpful and useful for many decades, is limited at best, right? And so we did a really good job in this paper by making the argument that the processes by which adversity is biologically embedded can set up not only addiction like eating, but set up eating disorders, including those are are involving not just binging, but purging and other forms of compensatory behaviors and substance use disorder. And, you know, my interest is on where those three things cluster, food addiction, substance use disorder, and eating disorders, right? And a lot of people have traits of all three that overlap or they oscillate between the three over time. And some of those conditions are uh, associated with weight gain, and some of them are associated with weight suppression. So if you take our childhood sexual abuse example, let's say someone is a survivor, and then going back to our original example, now they're 15, they're night eating and they're binge eating. Let's say that they don't decide that they're going to start exercising or purging. Let's say that they start taking Adderall and they move on to crystal meth. And pretty soon they're, they're injecting cocaine and doing stimulants all day and their trajectory becomes substance use disorder, right? At no point during their addiction treatment is someone likely to connect the dots to their kind of body dissatisfaction and those underlying drivers, right? So the model that's proposed in this paper looks at childhood sexual abuse as this specific type of trauma the processes by which that can become biologically embedded, the possibilities of someone then going to food addiction, substance use disorder, eating disorders, either one, two, or all three, and how that can affect weight trajectories over time. You know, a lot of a lot of substances lead to weight loss or or, or at least weight suppression. And one of the things that we do know is that efforts to suppress weight through dietary restraint. And through excess restriction, whether it be from drugs or really low calorie diets, right, are actually risk factors for weight gain. And the body responds to these things by making adaptations, making food taste more delicious, leading to binge eating and more symptoms of food addiction, et cetera. 
So yeah, the model looks at obesity as an outcome, but also considers how weight suppression either deliberately or sort of less deliberately, maybe through drug use or otherwise, can all also be contributors to increase BMIs over time. And then finally, we do make the argument that a, uh, a therapist or uh, whether it be a psychodynamic or someone that just picked up that theory along the way, telling someone that you know, you're doing this to be unattractive is potentially a, a way to perpetuate weight stigma and that that's not helpful and that we can sort of put that one to bed. Oh, I'm so excited for that paper to come out. So just backing up just a little, but I think still in the same, in the same vein, you know, how then do you apply that trauma-informed approach to nutrition specifically because you had said there are interventions that can actually make it worse. And so like thinking about the psychodynamic individual showing up and, and making this kind of blatant statement that's a really good example of how we can actually harm our patients, our clients. And I, like you, I'm sure number one, do no harm. So can you kind of explain maybe how you apply a trauma-informed approach to nutrition, like maybe with some specific interventions you might give with like some examples versus like what might make something like that worse? Yeah. One of the most important things that I try to do as a dietitian that works one-on-one with people in counseling, you know, which is really been my full-time job for the last nine years, right? So I have a lot of data on this now, is to co-create rather than instruct, okay? And that leaves room for a little bit of a dance, okay? So that I'm not doing something that isn't within someone's, you know, reach or realm of possibilities, okay? I use the term guiding principles rather than any kind of rules, Rules have pass fails associated with them. And a lot of people feel, you know, a, a deep sense of despair through failure. And so like, I would never have someone leave a session and give them a list of things to do that have a lot of potential for failure so that we're going to, they're going to come back in a week and we're going to start our next session with, I'm like, so how'd you do? And they're like, oh, well, I didn't do any of the things on the list. And it's just like, ah, oh, so where do we go from here? Let's just circle back to last week and give you the same information again. Right. That would lead someone feeling like they were, you know, the problem and that, right. And, and, and I'm sure there's some people that need a little bit of motivation and all that, but instead of maybe doing something like that, when we create guiding principles, they are directions in which we can start to move. Right. And so, you know, when I have sessions with people, I always want to start with what's gone well. Okay. Let's not start any kind of a a session on like, okay, these are all the things I, I didn't do, you know? So I believe in, you know, individualized treatment, That includes me being in a position to give someone, you know, guidance, advice, but it has to be sort of a choose your own adventure thing, because if it's not, then it's really just me thinking that I have answers for the world's problems, inserting myself into each individual based on what I think is best. And let's be real. We're all human beings. We're all limited. We're all flawed. Most people, if they have a point of view about what they think is best, it's usually what they think is best for themselves. Right? So it's like, all right, this is what David Wist does in his kitchen. This is how I eat. So guess what? You paid me. You're going to get what I do. Right? And like, to me, I mean, that's what most coaches do out there. 
Let's be real. Most people, they learned a thing that works really good for them. They become obsessed with it to the point where it's like, okay, I found a thing. I found a thing, you guys. And now I'm just going to share this thing with the world. And anyone who comes to me is going to get this thing, right? And it's kind of like, okay, that's a little bit dangerous, right? What if someone really doesn't need that thing or want that thing? You're going to push that thing on it. And you, you might pretend like you can you know, change it a little bit, but it's still the same thing. It's still the same thing. You could, you can say that you're, you're a little bit flexible, but like if some, like when I see people on social media and they're like, they're really into like, you know, teaching something on their stories. Like they have, they're really trying to convince people that they need to be, you know, raw vegan or they need to be keto or whatever. I kind of scratch my head. like, why are they so committed to convincing people that they need to do what they're doing? Right. And so I don't mean to be, you know, mean or fire shots at people, but I do believe that this approach where people have a thing and then give that thing to all people is going to set up re-traumatization for people. Alternatively, you know, screening for, you know, and obviously if you're not qualified to screen for these things, don't screen for them. Okay. Like if you don't have, if you don't have any training in trauma or, or knowledge of ACEs, don't administer those tools and start talking to people about them. Don't do it. Okay. But if, if someone is in a position to where they can uh, use more data. And by the way, like I screen for these things in, in, in my practice. I also collect data as part of my UCLA research, right? Through uh, IRB approved studies. I don't always talk to them about it. It's the information for me. You know what I mean? And if, you know, if someone brings something up, right, that might indicate a scientific discussion. But yeah, the, uh, the trauma-informed uh, approach truly is like, you know, patient. Sometimes my assessment process takes a few weeks as opposed to like, Oh, it's the end of the session. This is your treatment. Sometimes I'm like, I'm really not sure what's going to be best for you. Let's find out, like, let's play with a few things. And I think there's some humility in that rather than right. Being the expert. And I know everything I, you know, it, it ends up being that, you know, a lot of my clients, it might take a little bit longer to get to where they want to go rather than, okay, you got your, oh, I know what you want. You want to see the dietitian. You want your meal plan at the end of the first session, don't you? Uh-huh. Oh, you saw the dietitian. You just want your meal plan so you can keep pushing, right? And, you know, I tell people that I did a little bit of that in my early career. I was like, I tell people, I was like, listen, I got a whole hard drive full of files, okay? I could send you so many files right now that you wouldn't know what to do with. I have, I could give you every meal plan in the world, you know, I'm like, but listen, I've learned that that's not what's going to help you. We need to figure these things out and put it in the context of your, of your current life, contextualize it into your, your vision of your future self. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I talk about sustainable recovery. There's a lot of people that would rather spend money on a, on a crisis management approach, quick fix stuff that they're down to spend money. And I'm the guy who talks to people before putting them into my practice. And I'll, I'll tell someone straight up, this is what I think would be a sustainable solution. This is what I think would be in your best interest. And I'm willing to not take someone on as a client who, and I'd rather be helpful to them and not take them on as a client than take someone on and then, um, you know, potentially 
do something that could have any potential for harm. You know, as you said, Molly, the do no harm thing is super important. And I do think that's what separates credentialed and licensed healthcare professionals from the coaches. Those of us that have been trained that have are recognized healthcare professionals are, I shouldn't say all of us, but at least, you know, those of us that operate in the, in the medical profession do have a higher responsibility to do no harm. Whereas the other people, they don't have that responsibility to anyone. Yeah, no, so important that individualized approach. And I think it leads kind of into the next question with, you know, adverse childhood experiences and trauma. And what is the difference between, you know, I'm thinking specifically about COVID. You know, this is a trauma that many children and youth have experienced. So what is the difference between events, effects, and experiences for some of these youth? Because we know definitely eating disorders here in Canada, you know, there's waiting lists for sure. But not every youth has, even though it's a very traumatic event, has been affected in the same way. So can you speak a little bit about that? And and maybe if I am a parent and I have food addiction, do you have some suggestions for how to talk to our kids about this and potentially work with this issue? Yeah, thank you. You referred to the three E's, which is really part of literature put out by SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And, you know, it is important to differentiate the events from experiences and their effects. Uh, because a lot of people assume that the events themselves are what indicates the trauma. So two people can be exposed to the same exact thing, and one person could really have an altered life course developmental trajectory, and the other person could actually be better off because of it. Some literature referred to it as the stealing effect. They get harder. They get more uh, resilient to these types of exposures. They learn how to bounce back from it, right? And so, you know, even with childhood sexual abuse, you can have someone that was uh, exposed to childhood sexual abuse and not be traumatized. And it's not common, but it's a thing. It's not something that actually left a lasting legacy, okay? So the, the first answer is don't assume that any single event has the same effects or is experienced by individuals in, in the same way. And similarly, what we talked about earlier, things that might seem small could actually be huge for someone, right? You take one kid out of their third grade class and they've got, you know, a park nearby. They've got a great nanny. They're playing with the other kids. They're loving learning how to play, you know, they're learning new games and their parents are home to homeschool them. And the next kid's taken out third grade and they're crushed. And now they've lost 10 pounds. They don't want to eat anymore, right? And so, you know, the events never, never indicate trauma themselves. The experience of the event is what matters. And then when we think about the effects, that's how these things kind of play out over time. And, you know, when we think about the long-term effects of trauma, we obviously are thinking about the biology, but we're also thinking about social factors that make someone more resilient and, and resilience can be looked at biologically, but it could also be looked at from, you know, social and environmental factors. Like if someone has access to therapy or trauma informed care or community, other resources, you know, perhaps they're more likely to be resilient. And I'll say one other thing. I'm going to say some controversial. I can't do a talk without doing a little controversial stuff. There's times when these parents put the kids into therapy too soon, too young, and it makes them worse. 
I'm not saying I'm, I'm all for therapy, right? I'm, I'm like screaming mental health from the rooftop, but you get them in with the wrong type of therapist that starts taking them down all these roads early on, putting these, you know, thoughts in their head early on. I'm pro therapy. I've just seen cases where people have too much resources. And so they throw money at the problem and now they're doing too much therapy as opposed to maybe integrating into the community and then, you know, from an addiction lens, right? A lot of times in addiction recovery, we talk about going from self-centered to other-centered, learning how to be concerned for the welfare of other people. Sometimes too much therapy can just deepen people into the cave of self. And they're just living in the cave of self. And they're not able to come out and be well integrated into, you know, the other-centeredness that we often strive for. Yeah, exactly what you just said. I'm a mental health professional and I couldn't agree more. My daughters last year, they went back to school full-time last year and started experiencing, she loves school. Like she hates summertime because she's not in school, got back into school and started experiencing anxiety so bad that she was like becoming nauseous and they were sending her home. Right. And it's COVID. So like, they're not about to let any kid be at school who's experiencing symptoms. And I got on the phone with the teacher and she wanted to bring in the school counselor. And I was like, if this happens, here's exactly how it's going to go. And I had a conversation with that mental health professional. And I said, I want it skills-based only. She's not on her own. It's as a group and right. It's about building resilience. And it's like letting her know she's not alone, but you're not about to take her into a room by herself and start like doing this, like what could possibly be some deep dive behind her anxiety. She's eight. Like, you know, it's the state of the world. So I just appreciate, you know, I don't think that's very controversial. (laughs) I think it's great. And I think, I think it's true for us as adults too. You know, we can very much go down that black hole and it's really hard to dig ourselves back out. If we are not finding professionals who are willing to show up and give us skills to become more resilient, that increase our peace, that, you know, decrease our stress, all of that kind of stuff, then we need to find somebody who will, otherwise we will stay sick. So, you know, and you had kind of alluded to this earlier, and and I think this definitely all ties in, you know, how does trauma create alterations in dopamine and the amygdala? I know trauma can shrink the hippocampus and enlarge the amygdala, which then can make us right. Like more hypersensitive, that kind of thing. But can you speak a little bit more about how it does alter the brain going through something like a pandemic together, or like you said, like a car accident or, you know, whatever, something along those lines. Can you be a little more specific for us? Yeah, I've dived real deep into this literature. And so when you're actually looking at, you know, neuroimaging, right, you've got these different techniques, there's, you know, different types of MRI, uh, functional, uh, structural, there's PET scans, there's, you know, volumetric based ways of measuring changes in the brain. And so there's no real obvious way. I mean, these are expensive things to do, right? So when you do this kind of research, let's say, I mean, when you look at PET scan stuff, we've got like N of 30, okay? It's not like they're able to do these longitudinal cohorts where they're following people exposed and doing PET scans every six months for 10 years. Like those studies don't exist, right? So what you're getting is, yes, you can do some some follow-up studies and show that there are in fact a lot of changes in the brain, but you know, some of the findings do differ. And the reasons is because there's a lot of other things that also affect the brain. It's really hard to control for social context. Right. And so for example, 
if poverty is associated with adverse childhood experiences, you know, how do you know if there's changes in the brain, if it was directly from the adverse childhood experiences or from other forms of undernourishment or, you know, uh, deprivation, et cetera. So we need to be real careful about saying really strong things about some of the morphological changes in the brain. But for example, something like the hippocampus has been investigated for, you know, lots of years and lots of studies enough to actually meet systematic review and meta-analysis. And, you know, it makes sense from a trauma standpoint, if the hippocampus is associated with memories, okay? You know, a lot of times people that are exposed to trauma are going to have, you know, some adaptations that occur in the brain where they're going to not want to remember that, okay? It's not promoting survival to be focused on that. So there's ways in which information can become encoded in the hippocampus and the amygdala. And so, yes, people that have trauma can have disruptions in their memory. But again, do we know that like the direct effect of trauma caused it or is it because they couldn't sleep good? Because trauma made their sleep terrible, right? And so, so a, a lot of the data still needs more nuance, et cetera. But yes, we know at the associational level that trauma relates to a lot of brain changes. The most pronounced is decreased hippocampal volume. The amygdala research is mixed. And there are some data that it's not. So it's another example of when you lump things together, when you look at the entire amygdala, yes, in some cases, the amygdala is enlarged, which is a part of the brain uh, responsible for emotional reactivity, things like anxiety, depression, cravings, et cetera, that would track behaviorally based on what we know about trauma. But the, the research still is like trying to tease out like specific regions of the amygdala, right? Like it depends on how you measure it. Like, you know, there's different sides of it, et cetera. So that it's a really hot stuff. And I'll tell you, like I saw once at a, at a conference presentation, like if you really want to wow people and get them to um, really believe what you're saying is like throw up an, an image of the brain from a scan and they're like, okay, this is it, right? Like there's nothing higher than this because most people, you can, I can't afford that kind of research. You know what I mean? $2,000 a scan, right? Like I want to do that kind of research. I'm not even able to at this point in, in my career. So yes, super important stuff. But you know, as, as we end all good research papers, more research is needed, but, uh, yeah, with the, with the dopamine stuff, you know, that's, that's definitely been getting my attention, right? We know that adversity affects the way people respond to rewards. We've seen blunted dopamine transmissions and we've seen alterations in the, in the ventral striatum, which is, you know, a, a big part of the reward centers where a lot of the dopamine neurotransmission occurs. So, yeah, people are more likely to have addictions, period. People that are exposed to trauma are more likely to have addictions. And that's been well established in the drug and alcohol world. And now, fast forward, it makes total sense why that would actually be true for the food addiction world. If, if there's neurobiological overlaps between drugs and alcohol and highly palatable food, if trauma predicts drug and alcohol addiction, guess what? Trauma predicts food addiction. And now we have a handful of studies to show some in really large data sets 
it really can't be ignored at this point. I guess the next question is like, so what do we do about it, right? Let's figure it out. Let's co-create. Let's choose our own adventure. Let's do it. So speaking of that, what do we do? I know I both Molly and I have seen your presentation a few times on trauma-informed nutrition, and we know you presented to the food addiction camp as well as the eating disorder camp. We're curious, are what have been some of the responses that you've gotten from those presentations? So feedback is positive. I'm never satisfied with the amount of responses I get. I want more. I want to talk about these things. I would love to continue the conversation. But one thing I learned is that because I've had the intention or the objective of, you know, bridging the gap between what you, what we have referred to as camps and trying to decrease the dichotomania that exists, I state those things explicitly in my presentations. So people know better than to come at me from one of the camps, right? People know that I ain't the one. You ain't going to get too far campsiding with me, right? Because in my presentations, I always say like, listen, you, you know, if you're, if you're from here and you're attacking here, stop it. And if you're from here and you're attacking here, we're not going to move forward, right? So I think it's safe to say that people that are from either extremes no better than to come at me with any kind of extreme point of view, because I'm actually really good at diffusing that energy. I don't think it's helpful. I think it shows really clear bias at the individual level. And I think when people come from an extreme, if someone's from a food addiction extreme and is screaming that the world needs to remove all, you know, salt and sugar from the food supply, right? Like people are going to scratch their head and be like, wow, that's pretty extreme, right? If someone is in the eating disorder world and says that we need to remove all scales from medical offices and stop weighing children and stuff like that, like it's kind of like, wow, that's you're pretty extreme over there. I wonder what's driving you such a, and in, in many ways, and I'll say this, people veer to extremes because they feel marginalized and they, they take it up at a larger social justice issue. And anytime you want to start a revolution, you have to be extreme. So the social justice movements around body weight and health at every size needed to be extreme in order to get the voice heard, in order to get the voice across. People that want to change food policy, and I'm one of them, um, we need to be pretty extreme pushing for changes at the policy level, because guess what? The big food companies got deep pockets and like, we probably don't stand a chance. Let's be real. Yeah. So like there's a need for extremes in terms of like societal change, but when you would bring extremes to people at the individual level, that's where we need to be more concerned and more worried. Right. Some people like extremes and that's why they're quick to run to one of those uh, others. So anyways, to answer the question, you know, I haven't gotten a lot of pushback from any campsites because I think people are finally getting the message of like, huh, maybe we don't need to be at war. Maybe we can actually listen to other people, be curious, bring a trauma-informed approach and, uh, you know, stop pitting people against others and think about more how we're similar than how we're different. Yeah. That was my curiosity is like, have you, have you had more of a positive response? Like people having their eyes open, being able to hear you in these presentations where I have heard you say like, we're not doing that today, guys. (laughs) 
this, you know, you know, have you had people say to you, wow, thank you for opening my eyes, opening my mind to maybe there's something else going on here, or it's not as black and white as I've made it in my mind. Yeah. Once upon a time, I would put my best sport coat, my best suit in a piece of luggage and we'd fly somewhere and give the presentation in a room full of people. And you get to see people's faces when you talk and then they line up afterwards to exchange business cards and to thank you. And you really build social networks and you really understand how you have an impact on people. And, you know, uh, I've thrived in Zoom. My, you know, my business and all my things have done really well, but I miss giving a talk like that and being able to see the impact on people's lives in a different way. Because, you know, when you're in the same room with someone, you can certainly feel it. It's like, we talked about my International Conference of Eating Disorders presentation. Like, you know, it was like, it was a recorded workshop, right? Like, I don't even know who watched it. I was there for your, um, for the trauma-informed nutrition one that you gave not that long ago. And the question that came up for me during that was, is, could trauma or adverse childhood experiences, our understanding of that, could that be the link that finally brings these two camps together, you know, like somehow form that bridge. Such a good point. You know, in my assessment, the food addiction world has been more obsessed with the biology, right? The neurobiology of addiction. You want to look at molecular sugar and like, you know, just talk about, you know, some of the biological stuff as a biological addiction. And I'm a biological scientist. And so I resonate with that stuff. The criticism with that is like, you're not really putting it into social context well enough, considering some of the psychological factors like weight stigma and dietary restraint and all that other stuff. And then the eating disorder camp is obsessed with the psychology. They're obsessed with thinking about the psychology of weight and deprivation and how those things set up, right? And so trauma is a perfect example of a biopsychosocial approach where you really have to merge the biology, the psychology, and the social, cultural, and environmental factors in order to understand trauma. So trauma by itself is really forcing a biopsychosocial lens into these other, uh, as we're calling them today, camps. So I think that the answer is yes. Biopsychosocial life course models of understanding health are going to force people into different disciplines where they don't feel comfortable. Because let's think about it. If someone's trained in biological science and they got a, a degree in just learning about mechanism, they're not comfortable talking about social and environmental factors. So what are they going to do? Avoid them right? People that are trained in psychology don't understand mechanisms. They don't understand, you know, necessarily the pathways of inflammation that cross the blood brain barrier. Maybe they do. Right. But the point is, is like, yeah, they're going to probably avoid those. And this is what we call discipline bias. So a big part of what we're identifying as problematic is these splits is that there's a discipline bias. And so trauma forces multidisciplinary cross-collaborative approaches that will hopefully bridge some other important gaps. Yeah. I just want to thank you so much for doing what you do, because I know when you came to our food addictions professionals group, there was, you know, some individuals there that were definitely pretty polarized and I saw them start to melt a little and ease into being a little bit more curious and open. And I think that is your superpower. And I'm so grateful that you are here in this space doing this work. 
Wow. That's a huge, huge compliment. Thank you for that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's been, you know, you talk about guiding lights and I feel like ever since I came across you and started following you on social media and then like we were, you know, started talking and reaching out to each, you know, and having you on for, for interviews and stuff, I feel like you've become a guiding light because I always, and I think Clarissa too, we've talked about how we both kind of felt alone in our worlds because we, like you believe that there's there's this middle ground, there's this gray and it can become lonely out there. And so it's been very nice to have another voice, (laughs) you know, so we've got Clarissa on the East coast. I'm somewhere in the middle and you're over there on the West coast and together, you know, I, I just feel like I'm not alone anymore. So thank you so much for that. Go team. Thank you guys. Yeah. Being such positive energy. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.